0: Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our conversation with Roy Bethke, Maggie Varela, Mark DuPont, and Courtney Tassin about the obstacles involved in implementing the BTAM model and the community's role in it. For the resources mentioned by our guests throughout the series, please check out our show notes. Thank you to Roy, Maggie, Mark, and Courtney for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. What are some of the obstacles associated with enacting the BTAM model?
1: Well, I think that the... Obstacles begin at the individual level, go to the organizational level, and expand to the community level. And let me explain what I'm saying there. The obstacles are you may have someone that has spent their career career in academia, and they may have some fear about sharing information, uh, might feel that they're... Are protections that prohibit them from sharing information. So they have some preconceived notions that might prevent them from wanting to be involved in something like this. And again, I'm just using that as an example. It could be a law enforcement officer. It could be a mental health professional. So there's those limitations and obstacles. If we haven't had the opportunity to have information shared with us about what it is and what it isn't, that creates the obstacle and obviously the awareness type training can help break down that barrier. Then you move up to the organizational level and you have those same things just manifested in a larger scale, right? So you have uh, organizationally a school saying, Hey, we're not going to do this. It's, you know, we're, we're just going to take this particular action. If there's someone in our school that represents a threat and, and the, and the story ends there, it's no longer our responsibility becomes someone else's responsibility. Whatever those challenges may be. And then at the highest or biggest umbrella level, you have those community obstacles. Uh, Does the community have buy-in? Do they understand what this is? Is there an attitude that's prevalent that is a type of us versus them attitude? Have we really developed that spirit of trust that Courtney had referenced earlier? Have we really made it comfortable for them to want to be a part of this and or share information. So I think that it's, it can be multi-level and the answer to overcome that is what I was referring to, right? You make more and more people aware of what you're doing about what this is. You spend the time sitting down with schools to say, Hey, this is, this is what it is. And this is what it isn't. This is how you can contribute to it. You spend time with your community based folks and, educating them about what it is and how they can be a part of the solution. And that's how you get through that. That's why I think this program is so important.
2: I think I've also seen the challenge that, you know, from a legal standpoint, I mentioned earlier that um, privacy laws that exist uh, to provide additional protections and constitutional requirements that they're absolutely vital to what we do, but the vast majority of privacy laws have some specific exception for us to deal with in some way these potential active threat cases or people on this pathway to violence. And I've seen behavioral threat assessment management teams go to their general legal counsel or the the, bosses at their organization, whoever's in a leadership position and and out of fear, them not understanding the requirements and what's permitted uh, under those exceptions. And And I think a really important part of behavioral threat assessment management is to have legal advice from someone who actually understands what the law is and how the law relates and how we use um, information to protect people.
3: That's a great point. And it's just as important to have that legal aspect, Roy, uh, to know what those exemptions are. Because there's uh, there's laws and there's privacy and there's civil liberties, but there's also certain exemptions uh, that we can use in this type of situation. If there's an imminent na- danger, um, there's certain things that can be shared and can be looked into. So, Uh, It's really important uh, for us to know those differences. And when it comes to the community aspect of it, um, you know, try to to educate the community for them to get away from that. Oh, it's none of my business. I really shouldn't get involved. You know, I don't want them uh, to come back and retaliate against me. You know, they have all these fears uh, that they go through. Um, Try to help them understand the importance of them. Okay, you don't have to. You can do it anonymously. Uh, you don't have to share your name information, uh, but please share this information or this concern with someone. And, and like Courtney said earlier, it's not your job to identify whether this is something that's going to have uh, take place or something that we needs to be follow up on. That's our job. You just give us whatever concern uh, you have, bring it towards forward to us, and we will then take take the steps needed uh, to uh, identify and assess whether that situation needs follow up or not.
4: I think something too that can often be really difficult, especially with a multidisciplinary team, is just the clashing of viewpoints. I will say mental health professionals and police officers don't always have the you know, most aligned views on things, which can be great, but can also be challenging. So, you know, we've, we've encountered things in the past where, you know, not my officer signed in the program, but a patrol officer is like, no, we're just going to arrest him. It's fine. And it's like, wait, 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 like, give us a chance to try some supportive measures. So sometimes there's disconnect within the teams, but also it's really important to establish roles really early on and have a very clear understanding of scope for each role. Um, because without that, without a clear understanding of, okay, who does what and when, it's too many people trying to do too many different things. And things get lost, things get, you know, slipped through the cracks. So that was probably the most difficult thing about setting up a threat assessment team with my program, in addition to community buy-in. I think threat assessment is kind of negatively connotated often. People think that it is very punitive sounding, which it is kind of a scary term. Um, same with risk assessment. We just see a lot of well, just negative connotations associated with that. We have parents who are like, what do you mean you're doing a threat assessment on my child? And it just sounds much scarier than it really is. So. Recently, I was having some conversations with people you know, in different countries talking to them about their language that they use. And they're having the same problem of wanting to find maybe a softer language to use in certain settings. Um, so I think the community buy-in piece can be difficult just for many reasons, depending on what situation, what environment you're in with this program. But honestly, just because of the vernacular.
2: Another significant obstacle or challenge that I see from a, a law enforcement specific, uh, specific uh, perspective is just the, the culture of law enforcement. And, you know, it's agency specific or community specific, but we have a lot of large city police departments that uh, are, are really busy. They've got police officers that are going call to call to call, and they're really just looking to get you know finished with one thing and get to the next thing. And sometimes uh, because they're not properly trained. Uh, and familiar with all these different processes, they sometimes can overlook some of the challenges. The same is true in rural organizations that don't have the training or the experience. And We've certainly seen some targeted violence attacks uh, recently in some very rural communities. And, you know, you look at some of those case studies frequently, there were some type of warning behavior or leakage, which I know we're going to talk about, uh, that probably could have indicated if we could have got a behavioral threat assessment management plan in place, we may have prevented that taking place. So I think uh, the law enforcement culture needs to change. I think as a law enforcement profession, we need a lot more training and education about uh, what behavioral threat assessment management is and how to implement those processes.
3: I totally agree with you, uh, Roy, and and just educating officers. uh, uh, Once again, what's in it for me, you know, women and we uh, help them to understand that this is a benefit uh, to them in law enforcement and a benefit to their community and a benefit for even calls for service. You know, you want to try and minimize those threats within your community uh, so that you can focus on other other calls, other situations that are happening. So if you can uh, benefit from having a team that's going to be working on these issues uh, on your behalf, on your on the behalf of your community, it's going to help uh, law enforcement overall. It's just educating, educating them so that they can see that this is a benefit for them as well. That's a good point.
4: I truly believe that the communities are frontline. I mean, we look at police officers as frontline, but without the community, without parents, without teachers who are actively observing these people, how do we even get the tips? So educating our community, educating them on what the warning signs and indicators are, what the different ideological spectrums can be. Obviously in a very community facing way, they don't need to be experts, but they need to know what to look for. I think Maggie hit it perfectly understanding what actually is important and what do I need to know and who do I report it to like Mark and Roy were saying. So they are our frontline, they are how we get the tips. And at the end of the day, they're gonna know more than we do. So creating buy-in on our part is kind of our responsibility to make sure that they trust us enough to take the tips and the important things that they're sharing seriously.
3: That is exactly right, uh, Courtney. And I'm gonna use something that I use in in one of our uh, other classes. People call the police for everything and they want the police to resolve everything. And and yes, you call us and we'll be there. Uh, But the bottom line is the community, uh, we're first responders, but the community is the immediate responders, right? And in this case, they're not responding, but they're the immediate reporters. They're the ones that are living, understanding, uh, being involved with these individuals. So they know them intimately of what's normal, what's not normal, uh, they have the opportunity to observe them uh, and then, of course, identify what needs to be reported. So there are, like you said, there's a front line, the immediate uh, reporters uh, when it comes to um, this type of situation. They're not responding, but they have the opportunity to start that ball rolling uh, so that we can uh, hopefully stop that pathway from violence at the onset immediately.
1: Yeah, to piggyback off of what Maggie said, those immediate responders also have a perspective that we don't have as public safety professionals and first responders. They're just there on the ground level and they know a particular individual better than we can. And they can actually help not only in that reporting tip But they can also help in what will work and what won't work. Uh, This is where family comes in. This is where community uh, coaches, you know, if the kid is playing football on a team and the coach really understands that individual, they can be not only a source of information, but they can be an influence for that individual and help mitigate what that threat may be, help to get that person off that pathway to violence. So they I look at it as they can help educate us. They can help provide information that gives us that unique perspective that we didn't have otherwise. And that value is immeasurable. And I think when you convey that, it may help in breaking down those obstacles. It may not end it instantly, and it may not be the solution, the the be all to end all, but it definitely contributes to better awareness and better trust and a better relationship.
3: And uh, one other obstacle that I I see, like you said, Mark, when we bring the community, they're really ground zero, right? They know a lot more about that individual than we will ever know. Um, However, uh, they're also concerned if their family or their friends or their coworkers they're concerned about, you know, is this person going to get in trouble? Are they going to end up in jail? Uh, is it because of me that they're going to end up um, maybe baking, being Baker Acted? Or, you know, they, they have all of these fears. Uh, and that's another obstacle that we have is those individuals want to help that person. want They don't want anything to happen. They don't want violence to happen. But then they have those fears as to if I do report it, what's going to happen to my family member? You know, are they going to end up in jail? Are they going to end up, end up in trouble? And then it's going to be my fault. Uh, So somehow we have to find a way for them to identify that the importance of their family member or friend or coworker getting the help that they need is much more important and that that's what we're here for. And, And I hate to say it, but in the culture, in today's world, it's us against them. Somehow we need to change that format to know that we're here to help. Uh, where it's not that saying that, oh, we're here, from from the government and I'm here to help, you know? In this case, it's real. In this case, we really are here to help because it's it's helping us as a community to affect change so that an incident doesn't occur, a tragedy doesn't occur in our own community. It's just, how do we do that? How do we get to the community and help them to understand that? That's a big challenge.
2: And Maggie, to add to that and, and kind of, Add to what Courtney said, you know, community education, I think, is the absolute key to this. And one of the cool things about the program that we teach, the Threat Evaluation Reporting Course, is there's a, a module for instructors to go out and actually teach their community uh, about what this is and what this process is. And the, the more we get this information out, the more we do podcasts like this, uh, the more successful we're going to be. Because to Maggie's point, we're not looking to lock up everybody that, that gets reported. We're really looking to, to help them. And, you know, we can go back to community policing from the early 1990s. It's slightly humorous and also irritating to me that, you know, law enforcement circles, we're now starting to talk about community policing again. It's not a new concept, but this really is what community policing is about. This is about police officers and people engaging with their communities to help their communities. The problem is, from a law enforcement perspective specifically, is we got away from that for a whole variety of reasons, in part because it's difficult to measure success. Um, what does success look like? How do you, you know, there's no tick boxes. There's no X's or Y's at the end of a spreadsheet. Uh, this is about building relationships, which is a, a much more subjective measure of success than objective.
4: And Maggie, I think you touched on it perfect too, but also um, a reason people don't report is they're worried about retaliation or they're worried that they'll get in trouble too just adding the fear of not only the subject of the, of concern, but also the initial reporting party's fear of safety as well. And also stigmatization is huge just across the board. And oftentimes we talk about the danger of rapport um, when working with schools. Often I find that the schools have seen these kids from the time they were in kindergarten, all the way up to, you know, 12th grade even sometimes, and they're so clouded by the rapport that they've built with a student and with their family over the years that they can't objectively see the threatening behavior. You hear things like, oh, that's just how they joke around. That's just who so-and-so is. And we see that with their peers as well. Of Sometimes when you're with someone all the time, it's hard to see changes, especially if they're not drastic changes, if they're more incremental.
3: That's an excellent um point, uh, Courtney, it's true. And it happens with the family members too. You know, not my kid, my child would never do anything like that. You know, how many times do we hear that that happen? And, and it's absolutely true. You know, no one wants to believe that their ch- child or their family member or their spouse or, or whatever the person may be, uh, would be willing to get into a violent uh, situation. And once again, like, I think all of us have kind of reiterated that. I think that educating the community is really key to all of this. Uh, and And, as Roy was saying, I think we got away from community policing, Roy, because it's not easy. It's not an easy concept to build a relationship with your community and to keep them engaged and to ha- and to build that trust. so it's it's a hard process. that's a continuous process. Uh, I think it's critical, to be honest with you, especially in today's world, and especially when it comes to these situations, we want them to trust us. We want to, to let them know what are, what are some indicators that if you see them, you really need to report them and nothing else to protect your family member, or your friend or whoever it is that, that the individual is. So that education um, uh, aspect of it, I think is gonna be critical for us to get over any of these obstacles.
1: I think another element of this and we talked about it earlier, well, we, we didn't talk about this part of it, but when we talked about you know what makes a good behavioral threat assessment management team, an element of that carries forward to including and overcoming some of these things that we're talking about related to the community. And that's the element of creativity. Each community is different. There is no way we can say that what goes on in West Palm beach, Florida, where I live is the same as what's going on in Illinois, where Roy is, or Seattle or Los Angeles, you know, those, those, and going back to the point Roy made earlier, those rural communities versus those urban areas. So we, we need to be a little bit creative about how we not only approach the model, but also who we include and how we connect with those groups. And again, we're on the ground there in each one of those communities. What, what is unique about this particular group that we're trying to connect with, to develop that relationship with, how can we be creative about how we, how we do that? The other element is being flexible. Just because we go into it with a mindset that we're going to do this awareness training in this particular way, we need to be flexible enough to realize, hey, we've tried this and go back to the boss and say, this isn't necessarily working here because of this, this, and this. Why don't we change it a little bit and do it this way? The last but not least is we look for it in a BTAM team. We look for you know, being consultants, if you will. Everybody coming with their world of experience and their discipline and being consultive to the rest of the team. But you know what? That goes to the community as well. How can the community be consultive to us? What are those things? They may have a better answer at being creative and flexible than we can. Because again, let's go way back to something we talked about biases, right? You just we we have them, sometimes they serve as an obstacle to ourselves. Sometimes getting that outside perspective an outside view of how to be creative, creative or flexible and get that consultative input from the community can help us in creating more awareness and establishing that relationship.
0: So we talked a good bit about the pathway to violence model. Um, can we talk about some, uh, what are the key points that the community should know and Um, what are some warning behaviors that they should look for um, in perhaps a loved one they're worried about?
4: I can take a stab at it. Um, So I think similar to suicide prevention, um, obviously they're very different, but oftentimes we approach it the same. There are some overlapping pieces here of, you know, warning signs and red flags. Perhaps they are having a dramatic change in appearance. Maybe, you know, they used to dress, I don't know, like a normal kid and now they wear black trench coats and all black and they are buying things they normally wouldn't have. Maybe they shaved their head when before they had very long hair. I don't know, things like that. So drastic changes in appearances are always a big red flag. Um, It just is indicative that maybe something else is going on. Some of that last resort thinking that we had talked about before, maybe they're constantly discussing you know, their frustrations with one particular thing, and maybe their language that they're using becomes more and more aggressive over time. Increased time on the internet, increased time on social media platforms, also just changes in the way that they speak. Um, terms they use, things that, you know, maybe they're endorsing hate speech that they hadn't otherwise, and especially if it's not something that the family has kind of endorsed growing up either or the student or person of concern hadn't you know, been exposed too much. Um, those are some of the main ones that I often see. Oftentimes, end-of-life planning is a big one. Maybe they're giving away their possessions. Um, maybe they have a new interest in guns or school shooters or past attackers. Maybe they're purchasing things that are just really strange and off the wall for them, like body armor or a GoPro, suddenly um, we had a case here where a person had everything they needed for the attack. They were just waiting on the GoPro. So that was when we had intervened. But those are the, the main key points that I often see. But there's so many. So I will defer to the rest of the group.
2: So I think we look at the pathway to violence model in and of itself generally defined with, with six steps, the first of which is a, a personal grievance. And that personal grievance can be anything. And I think the, the caution to the listeners is, you know, if you hear sp- about somebody being upset about something, you think to yourself, well, that's ridiculous, or how could that bother them? That wouldn't bother me. Personal grievances are exactly that. They're personal. So for whatever reason, this is something that that sets them off and starts them down this pathway the second uh, is ideation courtney just from your experience because uh, you have a lot more experience help me help our listeners better understand what ideation refers to
4: ideation when you kind of look at it in a base term is just the thought of something so someone who has suicidal ideation thinks of attempting suicide someone who has homicidal ideation attempts or is thinking of attempting homicide or killing others so someone who is having ideations regarding, you know, acts of mass violence, perhaps they're thinking about it. Perhaps they're making plans and even talking about it with others. That's so something that we call leakage behavior. Um, perhaps they are, you know, daydreaming about it. More, more of their time in their day is dedicated towards thinking about this topic or kind of even preparing and planning.
2: I love the way that you described that. So, so you've got personal grievance, then you've got ideation, then you've got research and planning. Maggie, help help me. I forgot what research and planning is.
3: Basically, they start doing all this information gathering, right? They start gathering as to, uh, they look at past attacks that have occurred. Uh, they look at, uh, they start doing some uh, pre-operational activities, such as like, if for example, there's some cases that we've had that they actually went to the cafeteria. They counted which time of the day they had the most amount of students in the cafeteria, so they knew that they had more bang for their buck if they did plan it. Uh, they did research online. Uh, they researched the times the coming and going of certain locations. So um, they're they're kind of putting their plan in place, right? They're 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 putting their plan not only in their mind. They have that ideation, and they're actually taking the steps to put the, that plan in place and getting all the information they can so they can succeed. Uh, and that's the scary part. Once they get to that point, we definitely would like to interfere uh, before they get past that point.
2: Yeah, and I think a great real world example uh, of that, uh, those that are familiar with the Highland Park 4th uh, of July attack, um, relatively recent 4th of July this year, 2022, uh, that individual, uh, planned uh, his attack, planned a process for his attack, committed an attack, and then uh, actually went to a different parade in a different community and chose not to commit an act of violence there because he hadn't yet researched and planned it. He felt unprepared and was actually captured on his way back from there. So there's a real-world example of that research and and planning. And uh, so we talked about personal grievance, talked about ideation, then research and planning, preparation for violence, which is another Part of the pathway is pretty straightforward. You know, whether it's acquiring weapons or acquiring the means or disguises, whatever it is that they need to do to actually plan for that. And then Mark helped me with probing and breaching. I was kind of
1: well, know, once they've on the done the planning part and you know collected their tools that they're going to utilize in this particular attack. Now it's going maybe just to test it a little bit. Hey, can I get in the building that way? Uh, can I get past security or whatever other measures that might be in place? Uh, can I carry what I plan on carrying without being noticed and things like that? So this is where I'm kind of going through a dry run, if you will, to see if I can ultimately execute the attack the way I've planned it. And
2: then the last part, the last um, step, if you will, in this pathway is the actual attack itself. And obviously, if we've gotten to the attack and they've committed an attack, we're, we're too late. But uh, an important point is it's possible to intervene anywhere on this pathway with the exception of the attack. You could stop the attack right before it happens. But once the attack happens, uh, you're in trouble. So you could intervene with the personal grievance or the ideation or the research and planning preparation for violence or probing and breaching. And, and you know, our goal is to ultimately get people off the pathway to violence. But at very least, let's stop them and let's move them back down the pathway so we can get them off the pathway to violence. Um, those are just some
3: things to think about for our listeners. That Those are all great points. And I'm glad you used that example, Roy, because each one of those gives us an opportunity for something to someone to observe some kind of behavior that's not normal for this person. Uh, like Courtney was saying, maybe they start dressing differently. Maybe they're in the computer all day long uh, trying to do research when before maybe they were an active Individual outside, and all of a sudden they're isolated, uh, and they're on the computer all along, or they're purchasing several, making several kind of purchases uh, that they normally wouldn't do. So each one of these these steps um, not only can identify that listen, there's something out of the norm here. Let's let's at least talk to this person. If it's a family member, at least talk to them, try to get some some information, some idea of what's happening in their head or in their life. Um, but um, it's a great opportunity to hopefully intervene and and try and stop that pathway from continuing.
1: One of the great elements of that, and both Roy and Maggie have suggested it, it's what we called in the training that I did in my previous life, anomaly detection, right? And who can detect an anomaly? It's the people that are closest to the individual. It's the parents. It's the teacher. It's the football coach. It's the pastor in the church. They're the ones that can detect that anomaly, that warning behavior that Courtney outlined. They can also be sensitive to the stressor that might have triggered that grievance, right? Whether it be a a life-based event that happens, loss of a loved one, separation from a loved one, financial, you know, lost a job, lost a home, um, new assignment that they're not comfortable with. I mean there, there could be many things that to that individual are stressors and or a trigger. And just being aware of that will allow you to easily, Identify the subsequent anomaly. Since this individual lost their job, they're starting to do the things. They're starting to give evidence of those warning behaviors that Courtney mentioned. But I, as the again the parent, the spouse, the football coach, might be able to identify that earlier than anybody else. And now the real key is who do I tell? How do I do I make aware of what this is, which goes all the way back to making sure my community is aware of what we have available through our behavioral threat assessment model.
4: We talked a lot about the reasons that people don't report, and I think something too that, you know, say there's a parent listening to this who maybe is concerned about their child. Stigmatization is very real, but also think about the opportunity to intervene before they do ruin their life and commit an act like this. Um, that's often how we have to explain it to parents within my program is, I, I understand you're scared to come forward with information, but it, it'll be much better now than if they do carry out an act of violence. It's much better now to get them help, even if you know mental health maybe is stigmatized within your family, within your culture then it would be for them to end up in prison and be the next headline. Um, And with that too, I think it's really important how we talk about acts of violence that have occurred. Um, That's something that IDTurk or the program we teach is really good about is helping to change the language, Um, saying things like, oh, it was just so sudden, no one ever had a clue, it was just so senseless, kind of implies that it couldn't be prevented. Which is just not true. Acts of violence, like Roy had mentioned earlier, they're not just person snapped and decided to attack. This was very planned, and as we've talked through the pathway to violence that we just all discussed, you can see it's a very meticulous and well thought out process. These aren't just senseless acts of violence. They feel senseless because we can't make sense of them. But to that person, it did make sense, and it was a full planned attack. So changing the way we speak about Unfortunate acts that have occurred is really important,
3: too. That's a really good point, Courtney. And as we've known historically, um, how often have these tragic incidents happened? And after the fact, once again, all these telltale signs were there um, and people saw these indicators. And unfortunately, they either were fearful of reporting them or didn't think they were important enough to report uh, or each of them had their own reasons as to why they didn't. Um, but in every single case that we look at, almost every single case, when you look back, uh, hindsight is 2020, and uh, we're trying to get. And and that that's a great point that you made. Uh, when we talk to the community, that's one thing that we really think is important to relay. I'd rather know that my child needs help now than be the parent of a child or an adult or a family member of an adult that went out and, and tragically killed innocent people. Uh, I prefer that any time of the day, right? So yes, yeah, so let's try and get whatever we can to help these individuals, help your family members before they not only ruin their own lives, but ruin so many other countless lives.
1: You know, it brings to mind something here So we've spent so much time talking about, you know, the whole of community and establishing those relationships. And we've talked about the model, the behavioral threat assessment management model, and we've talked about the elements of that. You know, one thing that is also worthy of just mentioning to those organizations that may decide to go down that pathway and establish a behavioral threat assessment team, The other side of this is the challenges that they'll face that they just need to be aware of as they start doing this job. And one of the ones, when we look at our own personal well-being, these, as we've illustrated and discussed, can be lengthy cases, right? I'm sure, Courtney, you have some that are uh, pretty lengthy. and, And sometimes that by itself can be tiring. And sometimes you may want to, you know, in essence, give up because it's been ongoing. So we just need to be aware of that and make sure that we're taking care of each other and making sure that we're watching each other in case we're slipping down that. The other aspect of that is, you know, loss of optics. Hey, this was really preeminent when... This individual was identified through whatever means as being on that pathway. But as time has evolved, this individual isn't on the worldwide radar screen. He or she is on our radar screen, but everybody's kind of forgotten about that. And so you lose kind of perspective. It's no longer a priority in the grand scheme of things from how people are looking outside. We know internally, of course, it is another area to think about that if that loss of optics is happening sometimes there might be loss of resources so as a behavioral threat assessment team you know i have four people assigned to me in my police department or my educational institution or healthcare facility but as time wears on things happen we need to pull resources out of here to go over there to do whatever And I think we just have to be aware of that and recognize it and call it out maybe when it happens so that we don't find ourselves standing there as the only member of the behavioral threat assessment team, right? Or it's just down to me and Maggie. Uh, We we need to make sure we we stay aware of those things and make our leadership aware of those things in case that starts happening. They get that creep, if you will. I think that's an important part to understand as you're thinking about this and considering how you're going to implement it in your, your organization or your region.
0: Thank you. So as we're wrapping up today, um, what do you hope to achieve with all of this?
2: I'm happy to start. I think as we've talked about, um, the community, I think is our most important resource. And the more education we can do, for people about these processes and about the fact that that a system like behavioral threat assessment management uh, exists and frankly, that it works the better off and the more successful we're going to be. As I think all the, the panelists have mentioned, you know, the community really is our first set of eyes out there If we're waiting for law enforcement or teachers or somebody else to observe it. The reality is we're probably already behind the curve and we're chasing. So if we can get that information early from the community, and that the community understands that this isn't a criminal process. You know, it it has maybe that stigma or that connotation, but it's absolutely not true. The vast majority, uh, statistically, of behavioral threat assessment management plans end up in no criminal charges, no criminal uh, uh, anything, really, and and are able to to prevent and help people and get people back on the right track. As you know, we talked about community-oriented policing. This is kind of what that is. We need to get back there, and we need to be responsible for each other and for our communities.
3: Just to piggyback on that, Roy, I, I agree with you. I think that um, prevention, prevention, prevention uh, is really our goal here uh, when we do any of these behavioral threat assessments. But I look at a behavioral threat assessment as a win-win, right? When, you, when you're when you doing a criminal investigation or you're arresting someone, it's really not a win. Yes, uh, the victims have been victimized. Um, they're not really getting back what they, whatever it is that they lost. The criminal's going to jail, but it's really not a win-win. No one's winning in this situation, right, other than getting that person off the street.
1: To answer that question, Ashley, what do you hope to achieve with this? I hope that every city, every town, every region has established behavioral threat assessment management teams in the not-too-distant future. And I hope that the outcome is that we've prevented events from happening that's the end game here that's why i think this is no there's nothing more important as it relates to our country as this initiative and the more people we get involved the more from parent to law enforcement officer and all everybody in between the more we involve the more likely we are to be effective in our effort
0: Thank you to Roy, Maggie, Mark, and Courtney for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.